0: Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network, so join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. You're listening to the Great Women Compliance Podcast with Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine. I'm Lisa Fine, and we are kicking off our spring season with this podcast. I am so thrilled to have Lisa Crigston on this episode. Lisa is a partner in the White Collar and Governmental Investigations Group at Denton, and she's also the managing partner of the Kansas City office. Before going into private practice, Lisa received a presidential appointment to serve as a principal deputy assistant attorney general within the DOJ, and she was in Washington, D.C. She's also been a federal and state prosecutor. As well as that, she's an expert in crisis management, and crisis management is something that will be a part of a few discussions this spring, at least two to three-part series. So before we get into the meat of this discussion, Lisa, thank you so much for being here, and can you talk a little bit about your background? Absolutely. Lisa, first of all, thank you for this opportunity. I'm so happy to talk with you today.
1: And um, it's a great topic. It's one of my favorite topics, compliance and and crisis communication or crisis leadership. So my career, as you mentioned, I spent several years of my career as a prosecutor, and uh, many of those years were spent. I was with the Justice Department based out of Washington, D.C. And I traveled around the country prosecuting civil rights cases, and so um, they involved police brutality uh, allegations or police misconduct allegations, bias um, motivated crimes, that sort of thing. And I had a great opportunity to try cases, investigate cases, and um, experience courtrooms (laughs) across the country. When I left, uh, being a line prosecutor, I had the appointment to lead the Civil Rights Division, which was a great honor. And since then, I've been in private practice so as they say, I'm on the other side of the D, <laughs> representing companies who are facing a crisis
0: to their a crisis, um, oftentimes involving the federal government. Right. And one of the things, just from talking a minute ago about your civil rights experience, and also about um, you know you focused a lot on social justice issues, and one of the things in your federal prosecutor life is that you worked a lot with police departments and focused on that transition of where non-compliance then becomes to a criminal action. So can you talk about what kind of things you prosecuted there? Absolutely. I spent uh, several years, as
1: you mentioned, prosecuting these cases that involved police misconduct. And prior to that job, I actually had been a state prosecutor working every day with law enforcement officers. So I had experienced... um, building a case based on law enforcement officers' testimony and, and investigations, um, I then, when I went to the Civil Rights Division and I was prosecuting these cases, it was really interesting to me that these officers who had taken an oath and had decided to spend their careers um, enforcing the law actually made decisions, intentionally made decisions to violate the law. And... Um, you know, oftentimes to, to to great harm to individuals within the community. And that was um, an interesting experience and one that really led me to this area of compliance um, and, and crisis management because I observed in those situations the effects of people making bad decisions. And uh, to me, compliance is all about putting speed bumps in people's ways so they aren't Um, making those bad decisions so easily.
0: Yeah. So what kind of things did you prosecute then? Right. So um,
1: many of the cases involved violence by police officers, uh, law enforcement officers towards individuals that was unjustified and unconstitutional. So it would be um, incidents that happened uh, on the street during an arrest Um, an officer using excessive force in that situation. Um, I had several cases in which law enforcement officers used excessive force, unconstitutional force in the jail uh, or prison setting. So it was sort of throughout the gamut of law enforcement when officers would decide to use force that was not justified.
0: And I guess one of the things that's interesting about officers and, you know, seeing over time, you know, they move from the side of right to things that the justification of their actions, you know, how did you see that? How did that stick with you? It was really
1: interesting to me that officers who knew what the right decision would have been, who were sworn to uphold the law, made bad decisions. And ultimately, when they sat across from me and I was, you know asking them questions either across the table because perhaps they were going to be cooperative or in a courtroom um, when they were asking answering questions they would always justify their actions and that that ability to justify what amounted to unlawful unconstitutional actions was really interesting and um and candidly quite disturbing because you think if if that can be justified in their mind you know almost anything could be justified
0: yeah and then i mean i also would think with some of that it's also the frustration of not being able to make change or sometimes seeing some of the worst of things makes you feel somewhat a little bit more you know almost having some more of a high ground that you might not think about otherwise because you're dealing with the worst of the worst every day right right and
1: um, and certainly these officers, they would oftentimes have separated themselves out from the individuals who they were policing or who they had been um, uh, sworn to protect. And so they oftentimes sort of decided that everyone else was the other and um, that it allowed them to justify their actions because they felt as if um, what happened to these other individuals was um, You know, the the individuals were so different from them in their own minds that uh, it was easier to live with
0: on a day to day basis. Yeah. And that also is interesting because, you know, from that role, you know, the us versus them, the other you were there was that and you were kind of seeing the worst of it as you were talking about. But now how did you go from that to what you're seeing now? It's interesting. It's obviously
1: different settings. I'm no longer spending a lot of time in in jails and prisons uh, talking to individuals who have been mistreated. Um, In some ways, what I I do every day, which is walk into companies, often into boardrooms, hear about what's happening within the company that maybe led them to a crisis situation. Um, It's the same type of um, decision-making that is an undercurrent to a lot of the things that happen within corporate America, which is, um, well, we had to do this. You know, this was something that um, I can justify because it had to be done for business reasons and sort of that attempt to justify um, decision-making using ways to differentiate their actions from what the code of conduct says. Um, you know, you see that oftentimes in corporate America as well.
0: Yeah. And you just mentioned that, uh, you know, a little bit about, you know, how would you push those individuals when they're trying to make decisions into more of an ethical decision-making standpoint? Um, How do you, know, how do you, how do you push that? How do you work on that?
1: It is about creating those speed bumps to, um, (laughs) to bad decisions. And what I see it, I saw this as a prosecutor as well. What I see, um, with some of my clients and the situations I'm in is that number one, the, the decision-making poor decision-making starts out small. So oftentimes the situation um, that we were brought, were brought in on is not the first time there's been an issue, but that there were small poor decision-making examples along the way. And that each time there was the sense of um, either the person got away with it or if they didn't get away with it, you know, if there was some consequence to the poor decision-making or the violation of the ethical standards or rules, that that consequence was so minimal and that peers supported the poor decision-making, right? So even if there was some sort of management consequence, peers um, sort of shrugged their shoulders and said, well, you know, we, we understand what happened, that it just sort of leads to more Bad decisions, and so it's stopping these situations early on. You know when there's um, meaningful consequences, and the consequences both are in terms of management, so leaders within the company um, taking a stand, but also peers um, not not endorsing the bad decisions.
0: Right. I, I mean, one thing that comes to mind, you know, as, as most of our audience is in ethics and compliance, um, you know. What do you do when you are the management on that, um, or the person that you'll know, be seen? Even though we make you know strides forward to not be seen as the sheriff or the police in an organization, we, we often may not have that same peer relationship. When when you're not seeing the intended uh, you know results or consequences, and you're moving to the next steps, what what kind of advice, practical advice, would you give to somebody who's in an organization really trying to push this and hitting? You know, having trouble getting this getting their speed bumps in place only to have like another set of you know basically either accelerators or the opposite kind of speed bumps. What kind of advice do you have there? Right.
1: Uh, a lot of it obviously comes down to culture and and you know and everyone you know who's in this area um, knows how difficult it is to create the kind of culture where good decisions are rewarded and um, celebrated. I think that there are situations uh, where there can be a recognition that difficult things, that there are some hard decisions, and that there can be a public acknowledgement or celebration of some sort of times where things didn't go well, but people made an ethical decision. And so creating that culture where the ethical decisions are celebrated, even if it doesn't result in um, exactly the business dis- uh the business benefit that one would like you know sort of I don't want to say it's celebrating failures because not all of these things are failures but sort of creating a culture where where struggling with these issues and making the right decision is rewarded actually can help because then it's not just the absence of consequence but it's an encouragement to do the right thing and to share the decision making among your peers of how you how you reach this decision, and then having the organization support you publicly in, in making that ethical decision.
0: I mean, that is something that I think is really important because it's sometimes the, the ethical decision is is the hardest decision to make. It's the right one, but the support that you can get from an organization, even if it's not always the one that you know, and I'm talking now mostly for corporations, you know, that might not be the one that's going to make the most money but it is the right thing to do. And I always, I mean, just even as a consumer and somebody, it, whenever I, I see people making tough choices or doing the right thing, that, that matters. So it's also this idea that in the long-term that is the bigger win.
1: Exactly right, absolutely.
0: Okay. So let's talk about all of these things. We've talked about the, all these things up until now. So now let's talk about it in terms of what happens with the crisis and crisis management. So. Let's just start by talking about, you know, how do you define a crisis? Um, And and then generally, both for a board or for others, and then how would you define it for compliance professionals? Mm
1: -hmm. So crisis, uh, crisis to me is when there's a meaningful threat to the brand or bottom line of the company. So, um, you know, these can be fast moving situations where um, theoretically you don't see what's coming. Um, they also can be slow moving. It's, you know, it's quite possible that everyone can see what's coming down the train tracks, and yet it reaches that situation where um, there's this meaningful threat to the brand or bottom line, and that it's reached a critical point. There just simply has to be a, a decision or a different strategy that is adopted
0: um, to continue um, operating the company. Yeah, I mean, I also think that for some of us, we think of those crises as once they're in the news to become high profile as well. So. Mm-hmm.
1: Once they're in the news, once there's so, you know, there are different things that happen that become the crisis. So obviously news, obviously having, you know, if we're talking about corporate America, having consumers or the public talking about. A negative issue within the company. It could be regulators, you know, certain questions from regulators that no one publicly knows, but that within inside the company, there's an awareness that those questions could um, very likely lead to some consequences. Um, it could be not even that regulators have asked questions, but that there's an internal issue. Maybe it's an internal investigation, and that the results of that investigation, if known or if have to be disclosed outside the company, could lead to issues. You know, there are lots of ways that things can threaten the company. The most um, obviously the most public, is when when everyone in the public knows about it. But there are certainly other situations that are equally as critical.
0: Yeah, I mean, those for the long term of the company. I mean, you may have something where you're, you're, you're sitting on the issue that you need to disclose somehow, like you were saying, to regulators or FCPA or UK Bribery Act violation. And you're figuring out, you know, one you know, it's an organization, how do I disclose this? How do I fix this? And how do I do this in a way that is, um, you know, best for the, the organization because the employees involved and others and also, you know, being is forthcoming when you, it, but in the appropriate way. So I'd assume that's a big part of it with whatever you're doing. It really is a big
1: part of it, Lisa. And it's some of the more interesting discussions I have in the boardroom. So situations that happen within a company where I'm brought in as outside counsel and there is going to be a place Uh, a time where the company is going to have to make a self-report, you know, decision about whether they're going to self-report conduct um, to a regulator, to the Justice Department, whoever it is. And those are such a um, difficult time because there are companies and there are certainly executives that want that are sort of interested in that self-protective moment and want to avoid the conversation and and want to delay it and you know I oftentimes hear things like well no one knows about this yet and maybe we can take care of it internally Uh, and and so helping the company helping a company through those situations where something's gone wrong and that it's really in their best decision long term to self-report and it you know, sort of in that way, creating a situation that becomes the public crisis potentially uh, are really difficult and important
0: conversations to have. Yeah. So are those your first steps? Because I would assume by the time you get called in, one of, our, of many of the things that we just talked about has happened. So suddenly, you know, as, as outside counsel, you know, as, as a default measure, things are already Getting pretty close to crisis level because you're there. So, what is your can? What is your first step or your action plan once you're you're called in? Right. So, so let me back up for a moment. Ideally, the
1: I'm called in uh, before there's even a crisis. So, some companies, um, you know, who have gone through crises before sometimes um, have what they call crisis counsel. and so there is a working relationship around these issues. Um, even before there is an actual crisis, and and what that does is it helps create a team of individuals who can respond quickly and who can help minimize the crisis even before it becomes, um, you know, public. Uh, but if if there's if this is a situation where I'm called into the, uh, to a client and I walk into the boardroom and there is the crisis brewing, there are certain steps that I think are really helpful to take. So one is. Um, to make sure early on everyone within the crisis team, everyone who's helping deal with this issue is aligned around the same values. And I've had clients who actually write out the values and post them on the the, uh, wall in the conference room where we're working, um, hand them out. But there is oftentimes we need to take a step back and we need to talk about priorities and values and as they align to the corporate values. Um, There's then this idea of you have to pull together the right team, and the right team is a team that has a diversity of opinions and voices. So the most difficult situations that I've been in have been where there hasn't been that diversity of, of opinion, and you don't get people saying no. You don't get people who are pressure testing some of the ideas that are coming out, who Um, who think differently and have a different vantage point and so making sure you have the right people at the table and then and then starting to talk through the issue um, and there's you know a lot of discussion that needs to be had because in when a crisis happens not everyone can even agree on on number one what the crisis is and number two what the cause of it is so you know if if the idea is we need to get to the cause and we need to address sort of that root cause um, in addition to everything else that's happening, making sure that you have people who are at the table, who are um, who are open to hearing unpleasant information, uh, who are willing to speak authentically about what's happening and not just sort of in that self-protective mode and approaching this in a real growth mindset of we're going to take this situation, which none of us wanted to happen and which is really difficult, but we're going to approach it as a way to learn and grow and propel our organization forward. I think all of that is sort of setting the table for then addressing the different aspects of
0: the crisis. Yeah, and I think one of the challenges I'm guessing is the difference between getting to your root cause versus in these you know, highly stressful moments—a bit of a blame culture—to kind of get this distinction um, and keep people a little calm. Then, is that? Uh, does That's you find exactly. that? Mm -hmm. I do find that an issue. I've
1: been in several boardrooms, and I can think of one situation where um, the government had shown up with a subpoena. I flew in, you know, walk into the boardroom. I've never met anyone, but I've been hired to, to respond to this situation. And within the first hour, it was really clear that uh, the leader, the person who was leading this charge to address the crisis that was happening was um, isolating individuals who sort of spoke their truth, right, who who were willing to say things that weren't popular and who were willing to to say things that maybe were um, a bit critical of, of the leader. And in those situations, everyone learns really quickly what's tolerated and what's not tolerated and everyone wants to survive the crisis and so finding a situation where you have individuals who are being isolated for simply speaking their their authentic truth um, about the situation is is interesting and for someone in my situation walking in as an outsider is something we have to address immediately because while addressing a crisis is not all about just finding the root cause and and um and remedying that, that's part of it. Um, if we don't have those individuals who are going to speak candidly and authentically about what has happened, you never can't you, you just can't move forward as an organization in doing more than simply putting a band-aid on the issue. And and that creates a terrible culture, um, both in the moment and Sends a terrible message to individuals who maybe have other information to share in the future.
0: Yeah, I mean that could really be a chilling effect. I guess as you talk about that, I mean, and you talk about being able to be your authentic self um, and talking through these things, um, is that one of the things that you see as a pattern? Um, Because you are, you know, in building a strong ethical culture, the ability for the authenticity. So when you're called in, in other words, do you do you see gaps? Do you see a pattern? um, You know, they kind of you know, you can kind of look at and say, "This is where, you know, I can see where some of these issues are more likely to occur here." I mean, just in your experience.
1: Yes, I I will say that after all these years of doing this, um, I do end up seeing some patterns, um, and the patterns are are common. Um, I've noticed, you know, as we've talked about, sort of that idea of some leaders only want to hear things that are favorable. Um, Mm -hmm. They they don't take criticism well, and when there is criticism, they're going to isolate the individuals who are critical. Um, There are also a lot of leaders who believe that By leading, it means they need to state their opinion first, and they need to set the stage for what they think should happen, and then everyone else fall in line. And those sorts of situations, just like isolating bad news, um, making the decision and announcing uh, or sort of indicating where you want the, the direction of the response to go, has has a chilling effect on everything else. And so you sort of see these patterns and, and it's up to someone like me, someone who walks into these rooms and who's made a study of decision-making um, over two decades uh, in my career to sort of stop those situations and, and make sure that we don't perpetuate those sorts of habits, which in many situations may not be of great consequence,
0: but in these situations can be really detrimental. Yeah. So I'm going to change the topic from crisis um, and crisis management um, to something else about you that is unique. As I mentioned before, you're now um, the managing partner in Kansas City. You did live in Washington, D.C., where I live now. Um, my initial hometown is Buffalo, New York. So given the football. Hopefully we continue to have a rivalry with you all cuz you're such a good te- good team and for the global listeners, I am talking a little American football right now, but um but there's a lot to brag about about Kansas City and for those of you um that are listening to this the podcast, um there's a lot of local and regional culture. Um can you both brag a little bit about Kansas City and talk a little bit about how you know, being local and regional can be really advantageous to to the work you're doing. So both in terms of what's great about where you are and, you know, what have you learned from some of the changes, I guess.
1: Absolutely. As you mentioned, I spent lots of years in Washington, D.C. and still maintain uh, an office. There. And so I'm, I'm there often and have, um, you know, many good friends and enjoy Washington, D.C. Coming back to the Midwest, I'm a Midwesterner. Um, and coming back to the Midwest and practicing here, first of all, Kansas City is a wonderful place. And I'd be happy to play tour guide to any of your listeners who need recommendations uh, about what to do if they were to visit. But uh, it has been a terrific experience for me professionally, because not only is it center of the country and I can get to both coasts and, you know, there are all these great things about Kansas city and, and being able to live here and and work nationally. But what it does is I'm surrounded every day by people who are not working for government. I'm, I'm surrounded by people who aren't lawyers. You know, my life in DC is very government focused and lawyer focused. focused. Um, So I'm surrounded by all sorts of people and, um, diversity of, of thought and experience. And um, there is this, and, and Lisa, maybe you know this story, there's this idea of the, the invisible gorilla. And uh, so I don't, I don't know if you've paid any attention to this study, but it essentially, um, there were some students and they were asked to pass a basketball between them. And uh, it was videotaped, and and so the students pass this basketball, and then viewers of this viewers who watched this video were asked how many times was the basketball passed between the students, and then the question is, well, what else happened, and what fifty percent five zero what fifty percent of the people missed in that video um, is that a student dressed in a gorilla costume came onto the screen and stood there for a second and walked off screen. So people missed the the gorilla. And what's happened to me living in Kansas City is I realized all those years in DC, I was missing all these things going on in organizations and corporations, because I was so focused on on, you know, where I lived. And now with this diversity of um, different companies that I work for and the ability to interact with all sorts of um, um, individuals who are running interesting companies throughout the Midwest, I I think it makes really great decision-making for me. I I think, I always think back to the invisible gorilla and I think, you know, I would have missed this. It really enriches the discussion.
0: Yeah, I, I had one, I didn't ever have to hear about the invisible gorilla, but I saw a similar one where you were supposed to, you know, count how many times, like a couple people, I can't remember what they were doing, but then somebody in a penguin suit walked in the background. So it was a similar <laughs> exactly. kind of thing. So I'm missing the picture, yes. but, but one thing yes. I will say, it's interesting when about DC is that now I'm, I've worked in law firms and now you know working in a global corporation and it, it's amazing. I, I hear what you're saying in a different way because it's amazing how much I, I relate to my neighborhood and how I feel like, well, I'm not in the, the government thing at all. Like, it's an interesting dynamic because you can get big time, but I, I completely understand what you're saying, especially because in D.C. you can suddenly, like every third person or thing is about, uh, you know, law, law lawyers, law firms, um, the government. Um yes. Although there is a joke right here, which I'll end in and to make it recent, is that I've now read somewhere that they say, I mean, it's been always a joke. I'm sure this is similar for you in Washington, D.C. People say you ask, what do you do right away, as opposed to anything else that um, could be exactly. interested to in people. But now, apparently, the new what do you do is, have you had a vaccine? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I like that. Actually, that there's some commonality with Kansas City, then. There's a lot of focus on everyone getting vaccinated so we can get Back into in-person meetings and and yeah. sit over dinner at a delicious restaurant.
0: Yeah, which is before we go. Which is one other great thing about Kansas City. I have been there, and the food is fantastic. So, um, so that is one other thing I think is great about Kansas City. So, or anywhere Wonderful. else. Actually, these Wonderful. days, just getting into a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, Lisa, we will welcome you here
0: when when you're able to travel again. I yep, and you know, hopefully, I will be able to travel further than just within three or four blocks one of these days. But um, thank you, Lisa. Thank you so much for taking the time, for joining us. Um, In the future, we're going to be talking to people who dealt with some crises from different angles, from somebody who started in a job the, the week after a scandal issue situation broke to some others. And I really appreciate you giving us the framework for this and for taking the time. So on behalf of Mary and me, Compliance Podcast Network, thank you so much and have a great day.